You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 8th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In recent months, those who participate in the discussions on Energy Twitter have seen the debates about climate models resurface again and again. The last time we really mentioned it on this show was in the anniversary show in episode 104, but it has continued to rage ever since. Briefly, for those who haven't followed these debates, it all really began with the doctoral thesis of Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie, which we discussed in depth back in episode 49 in August 2017. In his thesis, Justin showed that the worst-case emissions scenario used in the Climate Modeling Framework, published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, was based on some very outdated and unlikely assumptions about how much fossil fuel the world is likely to burn in the future. And that emissions scenario, known as RCP 8.5 in the literature, has come in for increasing scrutiny over the past year as energy modelers and climate modelers attempt to bridge a rather large gap between the perspectives on the future that are reflected in their models. Along with this debate on how much fossil fuels will actually burn in the coming decades has been a parallel debate about how to communicate the likely risks of climate change, with many journalists depicting the worst-case projections derived from RCP 8.5 as, quote, business as usual, while other energy analysts, including me, insist it is no such thing. We won't rehash all the points made in those debates in this episode. Those who care to follow the conversation can easily look up approximately 47 billion tweets on it any time. But what I did feel was needed at this point was to set aside the conversations about the messaging and posturing and the attachments that various kinds of modelers have to their approaches and their favorite literature, and just revisit the underlying science itself so that we can all establish a common basis for understanding this enormously complex and confusing subject. So I turn to Glenn Peters, a senior researcher at the Cicero Center for International Climate Research in Oslo, Norway. Glenn last joined us in episode 57, which was part seven of our mini-series on climate science, to explain the concept of a carbon budget, which is the amount of carbon emissions we believe the world can tolerate while keeping global warming below two degrees C. He has been one of the key contributors to the Twitter debate about the emissions scenarios and RCP 8.5 in particular, and he has a deep understanding of what the IPCC emission scenarios really represent. So I hope that this addition to our mini-series on climate science will help our listeners understand the fundamentals of this aspect of climate modeling a little better. But before we dive into the interview, over the last few months, we've been hard at work to make your energy transition show experience better than ever, and now we have some subscriber enhancements to announce. First, subscribers can now get email notifications whenever a new episode launches. Just log into your account on the energytransitionshow.com website, go to the drop-down box in the upper right corner of the screen, then click the Manage Subscription link to find the opt-in checkbox for email notifications. Also on that same page, you'll now find a new Billing Details and Receipts button where you can download receipts of your renewal payments and see all the details of your upcoming renewals. 
And coming soon, we'll be adding an option for you to receive notifications about your Energy Transition Show account at a secondary email address in case you have an account through your university or another institution now and you don't want to lose access to the show when you leave it. We hope you find these new features useful, and thanks as always to our loyal subscribers for supporting the show while we continue to expand our offerings and create an even better platform for conversation about the most important story of our time. Also, I'd like to give a warm welcome to the strategy team at Royal Dutch Shell, who have purchased bulk licenses to the show at the urging of superfan Catherine Dixon over there. We are thrilled to have key decision makers at one of the world's top oil and gas companies listening to our show and thinking seriously about energy transition. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll update the stories about PG&E's settlement over wildfire liabilities in California and the insurance industry's latest moves there, and we'll review some recent announcements from the financial sector about their changing stances toward climate change and funding fossil fuel projects. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Glenn Peters, recorded December 18th, 2019. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Glenn, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, and I'm very glad to be back for the second time. Yeah. So the last time you joined us was in episode 57, where we talked about carbon budgets. And that's one way to understand how much time we have left to execute the energy transition while avoiding as many climate impacts as possible and do the other things that need to be done to stay below a warming limit. And I guess I don't want to say safe limit because we're probably already beyond the safe zone in terms of warming, but there are these rough targets that we've somehow agreed to form policy around, like 1.5 or 2 degrees. Celsius warming above pre-industrial levels. So just for starters, what's your view on aiming for a 1.5 or a 2 degree target? It seems like a lot of folks have given up on 1.5 or now focused on 2. Are they both safe targets? Yeah, whether you call them safe or not, it's sort of a bit of a moot point. You have to get what you can get in a sense. So I would say that 1.5 is just too hard, too out of reach. Two degrees is maybe in the same ballpark, but we shouldn't really think about the problem that way because it leads to defeatism. It's too hard. We just give up. We're going to get feedbacks and it's going to spiral out of control anyway, so let's not worry about it. A better way to think about it is that you know every bit of mitigation reduces the temperature a little bit, so the more we mitigate, the less the temperature will be, the less the risks will be, and so we go as hard and as fast as we can. And if that gets us to two degrees, then fantastic. If it gets to 2.5, then that's better than being at 3.5. So I try not to frame it so much around whether we go for 1.5 or 2. We just go as low as we can. Okay. So whichever target you choose, you can calculate how much additional carbon emissions the Earth can tolerate before it becomes likely that we'll hit higher temperatures. But those carbon budget calculations depend on a forecast for warming, and climate forecasts are increasingly under intensified scrutiny from several different directions, and I think it's creating a lot of confusion in the minds of laypeople especially, who are less interested in the details of the models maybe and just trying to understand what's going on. So, for example, 
On the one hand, you have people like Eugene Linden, who wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times on November 8th, titled How Scientists Got Climate Change So Wrong, in which he points out how some climate models have underestimated the extent to which certain factors might be accelerating warming. There was an article ending with the words, it's already here, and it's going to get worse, a lot worse, <laughs> which struck my ear as perhaps an echo of the David Wallace Wells articles and book, which also emphasized the uncertainty in our forecasting and the risk that will underestimate the extent and the speed of warming. But then, just a month later, on December 4th, if you happen to pop over to the publication Science, you'll see an article by Warren Cornwall titled, Even 50-Year-Old Climate Models Correctly Predicted Global Warming, which summarized a new paper by Energy Transition Show alumnus Zeke Housefather, who joined us in episode 40 to talk about how we take the Earth's temperature. And Zeke and his co-authors compared the actual temperatures to temperature predictions from 17 forecasts released between 1970 and 2001. And they found that most of them accurately predicted the temperature increases. So what is the average person to think? I mean, should we have confidence that our scientific models are truly capturing how bad things could get from climate change? Or should we be listening to journalists who are worried that we're underestimating future warming and who think it's more important to sound an urgent alarm than to really size up the risks more soberly or accurately? Yeah, people are going to sound a bit confused, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to think about the different audiences and, you know, there's a sort of a tendency to feel that one is right, one's wrong, one's exaggerating, one's not and so on, which I think is a little bit wrong way to think about it because they're really discussing different things. So Zeke, in his article that showed the climate models have done very well, He's looking basically at global average temperatures. And if you look at global average temperatures, they've done really well. But if you look at some other components, I think Arctic sea ice is a classic example. The models have been completely wrong on Arctic sea ice. It's going much faster than they had predicted. You know, they're trying to improve their model. So maybe the next round of model runs, they'll capture Arctic sea ice much better. But the climate models aren't necessarily doing well on all variables. Hmm. And then when you come to Lyndon, you know, maybe he was taking an extreme view and I'm not an expert on climate impacts per se. So I couldn't say whether our projections of rainfall or intensity of rainfall have been right or wrong or whatever. But he's sort of pulling out, if you like, the risks, showing examples of the distribution or whatever, which is fine. It's a different perspective of looking at the problem. And the important thing about that is that may engage a different audience. So, you know, I don't know much about Linden, but the people that get excited by Linden might not read Zeke's article mm. and mm. so on. And so we have to allow this diversity of ways of communicating the message. So I think people were way too hard on Linden. We should be encouraging people like Linden to get out there and communicate and have a viewpoint. If they're a little bit right, a little bit wrong, maybe they get an extra 10,000 people on board. Now, that's better than trying to have a turf war and say that only climate scientists should talk about this business. Mm. So I'm not too concerned about Lyndon, even though maybe it's pushing extremes or whatever, but maybe that works with some audiences. All right. So there's a communication issue there, which I think we probably need to explore here, but I want to make sure that first we really establish what the science is saying or what we know about it. One of the key questions here 
that frequently comes up, especially with respect to these higher forecasts of emissions, is the role of carbon feedback loops. For example, if global warming causes melting of permafrost, it could release significant quantities of methane into the atmosphere, which would accelerate warming or carbon release from soils in the Arctic. There are other such feedback loops as well that some worry about, but as far as I've seen, there really isn't a lot of good literature on it to tell us how much of a concern it is. I just don't think the science is well developed on that. There is one recent study by Philip Goodwin et al., which I'll link to in the show notes, that suggests that physical climate feedbacks like increased clouds and atmospheric water vapor resulting from a warming world, plus the carbon cycle feedbacks like melting permafrost, could increase temperatures by as much as 2 degrees C if we burned essentially all of the remaining fossil fuel resources. The paper actually says between 0.6 and 2 degrees C for every 1,000 petagrams of carbon emitted when an equilibrium is approached between the atmosphere and the ocean over many centuries, (laughs) quote unquote. But, you know, when I try to put that into plain language, I think that's basically saying burning all the remaining fossil fuel reserves. So, Is that a state-of-the-art estimate on the forcing potential of feedback loops, and should we believe it? Or are there other ways of assessing the feedback risk that we should be thinking about? It does seem to me that this study stands out from the others and that it only really focuses on specific kinds of feedback loops. Yeah, so I'll tend to, so what? (laughs) Does it matter? And just Mm. to fill that out a little bit, so... Let's say the models that we've got now, let's say they're correct. So the very first question you asked me is whether I thought 1.5 or 2 degrees was possible, feasible, whatever. And I basically said no. And we shouldn't think about it that way. We should just reduce our emissions as fast as we can. And if we get to 2 degrees, then we've done a fantastic job. So now you say, let's say there's feedback. So our climate models are wrong and underestimating the impacts. What am I going to do now? Well, the answer is the same. I still have to go down as fast as I can. Instead of being two degrees, it might be 2.3 degrees, but it's not as if I can go down faster. So basically what the feedback story is really telling us is that we need to be more concerned about adaptation, how we're going to adapt to climate change in the future, because I don't think that we would be able to reduce our emissions that much faster to deal with a potential feedback. And yeah, just on Goodwin's paper, you know, I haven't read into the details of it, but I think it's this is getting a little bit technical, but when we talk about the equilibrium climate sensitivity, many people may have heard of that. It's around about, you know, three on average, has a big uncertainty. This is in terms of radiative forcing. What Goodwin have done is basically constructed a parameter which is a little bit similar, but instead of being in terms of radiative forcing, it's in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. So it just brings the feedbacks into that equation. Hmm. But it's not so different to previous estimates, actually, at least from what I get from the sort of headline results from the paper. But, you know, the IPCC had a likely range from 0.8 to 2.5 or something quite similar Okay. Parameter that was defined in a similar way. He has a little smaller range and a little bit lower. So, And that's per gigaton of carbon or 1,000 petagrams, however you want to look at it. Yeah, 1,000 petagrams, which is a bizarre number. So, yeah, 1,000 billion tonnes of carbon. And if you want to turn that into carbon dioxide, that's 3,600 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. 
a lot. Right, right. Okay, I think that's a helpful number to have in mind, even though it is kind of technical, because it helps us to understand what we're going to talk about here in a minute in terms of what's the energy consumption forecast that produces that kind of emissions. But returning just for a moment to the feedback loops question, what about these so-called runaway feedback loops or tipping points? This is something that we actually discussed with Joseph Mikett back in episode 36, which was our very first part of our climate science mini-series. And you and I are now recording part 11. Yeah, that goes back to 2017. But we did talk about tipping points there. And there was a well-circulated comment in Nature in November 2019 by Tim Lenton at Al, which argued that the sheer size of the risks means that we have to act faster and more aggressively because we have no time left to prevent such tipping points. And the tail risk, even if it's unlikely, is too severe to really take a chance. So what's your view on this? I mean, should the risk of runaway feedback loops or tipping points change our view of the warming scenarios and our policy strategies, or are they also just sort of more toward the extremes of the emission scenarios we've been talking about? Yeah, I tend to think of them as the extremes. So yeah, important to keep track and see what's going on, but they're looking at very much at the tails and there's not very much literature on the tails. There's not much data on the tails. And if you actually read the paper, every other sentence has got the word could in it. You know, this <laughs> could happen. That could be the case. And there was another paper very similar called The Hothouse Earth, which some people may have heard. It also had a lot of publicity and it was pretty much the same things. This could happen. And there's a few plays on language there, which I think confuse people a little bit. So... You know, when people hear about a tipping point, they might think of, you know, a pen standing on its end and it falls over and can't go back to standing on its end. Right. And it happens sort of instantly. Mm. Bang. Mm. It's happened. Whereas these tipping points, we're talking thousands or ten thousands of years. So an ice sheet just doesn't suddenly plop into the ocean and sea level goes up 10 meters overnight or something like that. These tipping points are slow things playing out over thousands of years and I'll be dead by then, that I'm sure we can probably adapt to such a slow change in, for example, sea level. Perhaps it takes us to a new steady state is another point they make. We, of course, don't know. So they're basically arguing that we, in quotes, could already be in a situation where we've already got runaway climate change and mitigating is not going to do much other than maybe change the steady state that we end up in but i mean it comes back to this point like you still have to mitigate as fast as you can you know we're mitigating too slow as it is like i don't know if trump hears that there's a tipping point is he all of a sudden going to be a fan of climate change and put in policies i guess not so the constraint at the moment is not our lack of understanding of tipping points our constraint at the moment is our ability to get mitigation to happen yeah, you know, you're reminding me when you talked about that new steady state of our conversation with Colin Campbell in episode 103, where he pointed out that the vast majority of the oil that we produce today was created during periods of extreme global warming, sort of, I think it was between 90 and 150 million years ago, if I remember correctly. So for many millions of years, the earth was in a steady state that was much warmer than it is today. So that's further evidence for what you're talking about, that it's not just like this thing that suddenly changes state or suddenly tips over. Like we could go into a different kind of a 
global dynamic climate-wise. And I also want to mention that the Earth does have a certain amount of warming absorption capacity on a sustained basis. So it's not like there's no capacity for the Earth to absorb CO2. It's just that we're producing so much more than the Earth can absorb. So there is an underlying natural mechanism that reduces the warming that we're creating, as well as <laughs> these possible feedback loops that could increase it. So there's a fair amount of uncertainty there on the feedback question, I guess, is what it comes down to. Yeah, there's some uncertainty, and we know there's some things lurking around the corner. The carbon cycle, maybe where I know the best, we can use the observational period, the last you know, decades or centuries, and we can estimate relatively accurately how much carbon we've put in the atmosphere. We can estimate quite accurately the amount of carbon actually that stays in the atmosphere, and that stayed at about 45%. So for every ton that we put in the atmosphere, about 45% stays in the atmosphere. Mm. And when we hit a feedback, that number will start to increase. So an increasing share will stay in the atmosphere because the sinks won't be as strong and so on. And the amazing thing about this is this has remained the same even though we've increased our emissions. So this has been the same case when we emit you know, a thousand tonnes a million tons, a billion tons in a sense. Hmm. But we do know that there is some feedbacks there. We know in El Nino years, when it's hot and dry in the tropics, the carbon sink, the land sink is weaker. But this is a sort of a regional effect. It hasn't led to a huge global level change in a sense. We know, you know there's going to be some leaky permafrost and so on. So maybe one day these regional factors will become big enough that they have a global impact and we start to see some feedbacks. But we're not sure when that happens, how it happens. We can model it. We get a lot of uncertainty. So, um, yeah, let's just see what the data says. Keep trying to model it, make our models better, and we'll eventually learn over time where that breaking point is, if there is one even. Gotcha. So in the end, how concerned should we be about the way that our climate models do or don't recognize these feedback loops? And what is your worst case and best case view on the feedback loop question? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 
$5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On December 6th, California utility PG&E agreed to a $13.5 billion settlement with victims of wildfires ignited by its power lines, including the Camp Fire of 2018, the Tubbs Fire of 2017, and the Butte Fire of 2015. More than 50,000 people are covered in this settlement, which is intended to help victims who didn't have enough insurance to cover their losses. Half of the settlement, which was two years in the making, will be in the form of stock in the company, which is probably the only way that the victims could get paid, since an all-cash payout would require liquidating the company, in which case none of the victims would be likely to get any compensation at all. This new agreement is the utility's third major recent settlement, following a $1 billion payout to cities, counties, and other public entities, and an $11 billion settlement with insurance companies and other entities that have already paid claims relating to the 2017 and 2018 wildfires. The settlement does not cover PG&E's potential liability for more recent fires, however, including the Kincaid Fire in 2019, which tore through Santa Rosa and parts of wine country. Listen to episode 102 for the whole story on California's wildfires and PG&E's culpability in them. Item 2. As we discussed in episode 102, the problem of wildfire risk in California extends far beyond PG&E, or even the utility sector as a whole. Residents of the Golden State are now exposed to wildfire risk from multiple causes, in addition to transmission power lines and insurance. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.